He organizes them, and he gives them a priesthood that were the descendants of one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Levi. And so therefore they're called the Levites. And if you go to Numbers, actually chapter 5, you see that God begins to define what the Levites, who were going to be their priests, what he wanted them to do for the people. And it's really a, really a wide path of things that they did, far more than, let's say, the traditional role of a religious leader today. Uh, the priests, the Levitical priests, were involved in just about every aspect of the daily life of the Israelis. They did everything from making sure that they maintained the ceremonial and hygienic purity within the camp in order that they not incur God's wrath. They made sure that there was fairness, that if somebody took something they shouldn't or cheated somebody else, that there was restitution. They settled questions of marriage problems. Boy, we, we don't have any problem with that today, do we? Imagine these guys. That, that was probably a full-time job right there, just dealing with squabbles between couples. And they settled the parameters for this mysterious Nazarite vow that we don't have time to dig into today, but they sort of defined what it was. And it was basically a time where an individual would enter into a personal covenant with God in order to maintain their lifestyle in such a way to be pleasing to him. But the most important thing that God does with these Levitical priests, and specifically Aaron, Moses' brother, who was named the first high priest, and all of his sons would be high priests after him, firstborn anyway, and God speaks to Moses in order to speak to his brother concerning something that was very important to him, and that was the formal blessing of his people. Which brings us to Numbers chapter 6, starting at verse 22. Let's read all about it. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Okay, the, the word in Hebrew that's translated Lord, pretty common... Uh, at least for most Christians today, it's, it's really not a word. It's just four consonants. They removed the vowels from this word so that no one really knew how to say it. And that was because the Jews held the name of God to be so holy, they felt like no one should know how to speak it. And they didn't. They, they usually would never even try to speak the name of God because they were so afraid of him and they knew this name was so holy. But we do know the four consonants, which they would equate in English to Y-H-W-H, which, hard to say a word if there are no vowels, basically it amounts to Yahweh. And we've sort of changed it today into Yahweh, um, but we really don't know how the word was actually spoken. There are some who believe that the high priest um, alone in Israel was the one entrusted to know what the vowels were in order how to speak the name. But we don't know that for certain. We do know that whatever the name was, um, it was used at the beginning all, of all three of these aspects of blessing that God instructs uh, the, the Aaron and his sons to do for the people. And it says that he spoke to Moses to give these instructions. You notice that he doesn't speak directly to Aaron. And that was because Moses had a unique relationship with God. Very unique. We're told that Moses spoke to God face to face, which is mind-boggling. I could spend an entire sermon just on that, of just how a man could speak to a holy God face to face and not be consumed by the power of his holiness, but God granted Moses that special 
favor. And we're told that there's no other Old Testament prophet who had that kind of a relationship with God. He was the only one who spoke to him with that kind of face-to-face intimacy. And I, I can't six times with Moses. I wonder, what did Moses see when he saw the presence of God and he was that close, face-to-face? But we don't get the impression that it was a dangerous thing as much as it was just a, a wonderfully intimate thing. It was God's way of saying, I want you to come close because I have some things I want to tell you. Verse 23, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, okay, the reason God instructs Moses to speak to Aaron is because Aaron needed to understand what God expected and wanted when it came to formal blessing of his people. And it's really important that we understand how God goes about blessing his people. There are very specific parameters to it. See, God's blessing isn't just for everybody. We think it is, but it really isn't. God blesses very specific people in very specific ways for a very specific purpose. God's blessing is tailor-made for those who both keep his covenant and are a part of his covenant people, which means that it is a promise that you and I can really dig down into and experience something wonderful just as they did. Because the sons of Aaron were going to represent the future high priesthood of Israel, it was important that they understood how this worked. And it was an ecclesiastical ordinance. It was something that they were to do as a ritual in ongoing fashion. And you want to know something that's interesting? To this day, rabbis, priests within Judaism still pronounce this exact same blessing over the people in their synagogue. To this day, the same blessing survives. And we're told in uh, Leviticus chapter 9 how this worked. We're told that as the tabernacle was constructed and God gave Moses the instruction to give to Aaron and he gave the instruction to Aaron, we're told that Aaron in all of his full priestly regalia and he must have looked majestic because if you read in the Old Testament about what he wore, his vestments, They were impressive. And he stood before all of Israel, probably at least a couple million people, all standing reverently before this thunderous structure of the tabernacle with this mysterious room, this inner sanctum where the Ark of the Covenant sat and where above this Ark, something that represented the manifestation of God's presence was glowing. It was both both beautiful and mind-boggling and terrifying at the same time. And I can only imagine it must have glowed. And here's Aaron standing behind this structure with this cacophony of whatever it is going on behind him. And we're told that Aaron stood before the people and he raised his hands in order to pronounce this blessing. And God tells him here what he's supposed to say. I don't know why he raised his hands. I know we still do today trying to repeat that. I tend to think that it was either one of two things. It was either Aaron's mode of just lifting his own worship to God. I think that's part of it. I think the other part maybe is just Aaron almost enveloping all of Israel. Almost like, my brethren, come close. God has something he wants to say to you. 
What's really interesting, if you're a student of with his disciples, we're told. He spoke with them, gave them instructions, reassured them, forgave them, like people like Peter. And before he leaves, we're told that he stood before them. And before he ascended into heaven, you know what he did? We're told that he raised his hands and pronounced a blessing over his disciples, very much in keeping with what Aaron did with the Israelis. You can read about that in Luke chapter 24. And then God tells Moses to tell Aaron, this is how you should bless the people of Israel. And what you're going to find is that the blessing involves great specificity. It's not just, eh, God bless you. Knock yourself out. You know the way we pronounce God's blessing? And not ever expecting anything from it or ever getting into any detail. What you're going to find that the blessing of God always goes into detail. It's always tailored for exactly what God wants to do. We're told in James chapter 2 that, that when we bless other people, it's supposed to be a lot more than just words. You see somebody in need and you say, well... I hope you stay warm. I hope you have a good meal tonight, but you don't do anything about it. That's an empty blessing. And we're warned, don't do that. Put some teeth to what you say. And when Aaron declares the details of God's favor here, you're going to see that the people are going to be very, very comforted in in the concrete assurance of God's presence, love, and care going forward. So here's what Aaron was instructed to say and what he said. Starting in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. In Hebrew, the word bless you is barak. It means to bestow prosperity or goodness on someone else. And it isn't general and it isn't without teeth. The Israelis clung to this blessing, especially when they were afraid. This was an ironclad thing that God was giving his people that was supposed to hold them when they were afraid, when they were surrounded by enemies, or when they weren't going to have enough food, or whether they were debating to go into the new promised land. These were the things that they were supposed to hang their hat on. They were the foundation that they stood on in order to do what God said. Was it important to them? Back in 1979, there were some archaeologists that were digging in West Jerusalem, a little place called Ketef Hinnom. And as they were digging, they found something. It was made out of metal. And of course, they gingerly took it out of the ground and began to try to figure out what it was. And what they found was that on these plates, something was engraved. And it was ancient. It dated back to somewhere between 650 and 700 B.C. That's 700 years before Christ comes onto the scene. That it dated back to the time of King Hezekiah. And you know what was engraved on the plates? This passage. As a matter of fact, it remains to this day the oldest piece of surviving scripture that we have. Isn't that fascinating? The oldest piece of scripture is this blessing from God? I think that indicates to us that this stuff is important. And it's going to be real important as you move into this coming week, especially when you come to Thanksgiving, because what should we be thankful for? Secondly, blessing. So let's figure out what it is. It says God's going to bless you. 
Secondly, he says he's going to keep you. In Hebrew, it's shamar. It means to attend, guard, watch over, protect, and preserve. Shamar was used very commonly to describe the way a shepherd took care of his sheep. Jesus said that a good shepherd actually will lay down his life to protect his sheep. Ever had an animal that you love so much that you'd pony up your life for it? That's how God feels about us. And would he offer up his life for us? Oh, you bet. Verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Make his face shine is interesting. In Hebrew, it's yaor pana. It means to have a bright face. What it really means is, may the Lord, when his face looks upon you, may it light up. Ever had your face light up because you saw someone else? I, it happens to me with my children. It happened to me the first time I saw my wife. It happened to me with my grandchildren when they come in. Got a friend that you haven't seen in a long time and they show up and your, your face lights up. When I went back to California last week and I saw my mom, I could tell her face lit up and hadn't even been gone all that long. That's how God feels about us. He says, may the Lord, when he sees you, this is part of the blessing, may his face light up. May he be gracious to you. In Hebrew, kanan, it means to show kindness or unmerited favor. It means to give us not what we've deserved, not what we've got coming, but what we desperately need. And there is a big difference. And these people, if you've read the history of the Old Testament, you know that the Israelis needed a lot of God's grace, just like we do. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In Hebrew, the word countenance, again, is the same Hebrew word, pana. It means face. It means that when you come into God's presence, may he lift up his face and look at you. You know, in ancient days, there were a multiplicity of kings. And the more powerful the king, typically, the more indifferent the monarch was toward his people. It was very common for someone to be brought before a king for some kind of a judgment or a disposition on their life. And maybe the king would be deciding whether or not they're going to live or die. And half the time, the king would be so bored or preoccupied that he wouldn't even bother to look up and make eye contact. Can you imagine? You're standing before someone who has the ability to decide whether or not you're going to live or die. And they don't even look you in the eye. How cold and callous. We're told that our God is not like that. Instead, we're told that he draws near to everyone who seeks him. You can read about that in Philippians 4, 5, Psalm 34, 17 through 18, Acts 17, 27. But not just that. Not just to connect with you and to make eye contact with you. To deem you important enough to actually listen to what's going on and do something about it. But we're also told that as a result of all that, to give you peace. In Hebrew, it's a very familiar word, shalom. It means serenity, ease of mind, harmony, and wholeness. The byproduct of God's blessing in our lives is that it fills us with what we need probably more than anything else. I think the two greatest needs that we have as people, one, to love and be loved, and two, to have some kind of serenity, to have peace and harmony. It's what everybody's looking for. Now, they're looking for it in different places, and most of the time, the wrong places. 
but it's what we desperately need because it's how God has wired us. He has created us in such a way that we have a desperate need for what only He can give us. Verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. And now here's one of the best things. God says, Aaron, when you're blessing my people, you know what you're doing? You're putting my name on them. In Hebrew, the word translated put is sum. It means to place, set, or mark something upon another. It's, it's the idea of stamping or labeling something in order to demonstrate possession. The other day we were talking about how there's a big trend with people coming in and cutting catalytic converters off of cars. And you dare not leave your vehicle in a dark spot because these guys can come in and take it out quick. And one of the ways that mechanics are suggesting you protect yourself is by engraving some sort of an identifying mark on your catalytic converter. I thought about that. You know, we, that's why we give our children our last name. God is willing to put his name on us. Can you imagine? His holy name, he's willing to stamp it on the likes of us. When I was a kid, my dad would always tell me, uh, I've given you my last name. I only ask one thing. Don't shame it. I wish I could say I never have, but I've tried since then to live up to it. We bear the name of our God. We ought to live up to it if we do bear his name. And then he says, I will bless them. It's just another way of God repeating that he will assume responsibility for the care and protection of those who belong to him. Okay, so let's take a quick look in the time we have left as to how God's favor works according to this passage. It involves three things. Number one, pardon. Part of God's favor is that he's willing to forgive us when we fail him. That's real important because you know how often we fail God? All the time. We fail God all the time. Even when we're trying to not fail him, we fail him. Even when we don't think we're failing him, we're failing him. Even if we don't believe in him, we're really failing him. And God is willing to forgive. Verse 25 says, he will be gracious to you. How does that work? Well, you have to seek it. You have to acknowledge who he is and that we've to forgive us and to bridge the gap. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. I like that last little modifying word. He won't just pardon us. He will abundantly pardon anybody who comes looking for it. Next, it involves peace. Verse 26, he says he's going to give you peace. Anybody having trouble sleeping? Usually that's a lack of peace. I find one of the biggest reasons that people come looking for counsel with me, if and when they do, is because their life just gets so miserable that they're looking for answers. They're looking for hope. They're looking for a way that they can put their head down on the pillow and sleep at night. Do you know the Bible actually guarantees that God, when he gives you peace, that's what you can do is put your head down and you're gone. You don't need Ambien. You don't need quiet music or the sound of rainfall, or a crackling fire. He'll put you right to sleep because he will give you peace in your heart. You may not have peace in your life or in your circumstances, but he can give you peace where it matters most, inside. Isaiah 26, 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want peace? 
You want peace that can overwhelm your circumstances? Then you have to go to the only being who has control over them. Lastly, possession. God promises that he will make us a part of who he is. He will put us into his family. Verse 24 says, the Lord will keep you. Keep you. It's the idea of keeping watch over you, the way we do with our children. Ever seen a parent at a park? A good parent. Their face isn't in their phone, nor are they so caught up in conversation that they lose sight of their children. A good parent at a park is watching their kids like a hawk. That's how God is with us, because we belong to him. And verse 27, God just simply says, you'll put your name on them. You'll label them as your own. And we're promised that in the scripture. 2 Corinthians 1.22, Deuteronomy 28.10, God promises that he will label us with his name. He will inscribe his name upon us. Matter of fact, we're told in heaven we're going to get a new name related to who God is. 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know, whatever name you bear, you'll tend to live up to it. You know, it's been kind of proven that if you tell a child that they're worthless, by and large, they live up to that. You are? You tend to live up to that. God promises that we can become his children, not because we deserve it or could ever earn it, but because we've come to him and asked him. And then he saves us, changes us, renames and relabels us, and that's how lives change. I've had a lot of different labels on me over the years. I've been a drunk, a drug addict, a gambler. My dad had a few names that I can't repeat. And I lived up to them. And then I was saved, changed, redeemed, made into a child of God, and began to live up to that and change is how renaming works. They're connected together. All right. Let's talk about this in application with the few minutes we have left here. David one time, I think while he was still working as a shepherd when he was young, he used to lay out under a lot of night skies. And I've spent a lot of time under night skies, both when I was a kid and then not too long ago when I used to get up early to go walking under a night sky. I liked getting up while it was still early enough that it was dark because it felt like, number one, there was no noise going on around me to interfere with my prayer. And two, it felt like my prayer could go right up to God and there was nothing standing in the way. And David, one night when he was out under a night sky, he mused about how fascinating it was that God should take notice of humanity given who he is and where he is that he should look down on this tiny little speck of a planet in an immeasurable universe and should see us as one thing, but to take notice of us and to be concerned about us. Every single person. Does he? I mean, really, does he? Not long ago, there was a man. He had no identification no social security card or number, and he was living in a cardboard box. His name is John Halensky, 
He lived in Tampa, Florida, and he was homeless and nameless for years. But thanks to some individuals who got involved in his life and who cared about him, he's no longer in that condition. As a matter of fact, everything has changed. It all began when he met a man named Charles Inman. Charles Inman is a caseworker for a place called the DACO Housing Solutions Center. DACO just stands for Drug Abuse and Comprehensive Coordinating Office. It's a, it's a gigantic social agency in Florida and Tampa that helps people that are on the street who want to transition back into a regular life, I guess you would call it. He met Helensky, who was 62 at the time, and who had just been so sober for a cup of coffee. Before that, he'd just been swept up in alcohol and drug abuse and so many other dysfunctions that lead people into that circumstance. And because Holinsky was really trying, this guy decided that he deserved his time. So he began to figure out how he could get this guy set up in, his, in, a, in a home, in a shelter, uh, you, you, in order to be able to, to re-enter into the life stream that he had once had before. The problem was that Helinski had no paperwork, and as you know, without paperwork, it's hard to access much of anything. So he got him set up first with a bunk and a locker at an emergency housing facility, and then he began to work on his case. It was challenging because without an ID or social security number, you really can't do much, and Inman was quoted later on. He said, he needed an ID, but we couldn't get that without a birth certificate. And he didn't have a birth certificate. What further complicated matters was the fact that he was a foreign-born U.S. citizen. He had been sired in Poland by American parents. Another individual that got involved was a Tampa police officer. His name is uh, Dan McDonald. And he met Holinsky while out on his rounds and decided that he was going to take a consular record of foreign birth or something like that. Well, they eventually got all that paperwork squared away, and he and Inman finally got Halinsky a driver's license and a social security card. And during that whole time, they'd been interviewing Halinsky about his previous life. And Halinsky, because of, he'd so abused his mind and his body with drugs and alcohol, was having a hard time remembering the past. Maybe some of you can kind of relate with that. But one day, he kind of remembered, you know, I think I used to have a bank account. So they said, that's great, where at? At first, he thought it was a place called Landmark Bank, but that turned out to be incorrect. Then he thought, well, maybe it was Bank of America. Well, after doing a ton of homework with different banks, trying to figure out where his account was, they finally figured out that he did, in fact, at one point, have an account. And with paperwork now and identification, he could access it. And when they accessed it, they made an amazing surprise, or found an amazing surprise. They discovered that he had actually qualified for Social Security benefits years earlier that he had completely forgotten about, and that those Social Security payments had been going to this bank account, and that because he didn't know any of that, holding up, when they finally found it, he had a nest egg of thousands of dollars available to him. So much so that he was able to not just get off the street, but buy a house and have further income in order to live his life. Helensky was asked about it. You know what he said? Here's his quote. 
I guess I'm exhilarated, excited, you know? <laughs> As a guy that's like, oh, wow, what a shock. As for McDonald and Inman, they were left stunned. We weren't quite sure what to say. It's nice to see such a happy ending for a good guy. Beloved, just like God sees this homeless man who's trying to come out of that life and make change, stumbling and fumbling forward, and God saw it and rewarded it and took care of him and blessed him, he sees you. I don't know what you're going through. I know probably some of you are going through some real tough stuff. But he sees you. He has not forgotten you. He cares about you. And all he asks is that you look up and turn back toward him and seek him. And he promises that he'll begin to change things. Now maybe he's not going to fix every negative circumstance in your life, but I promise you, he's going to make his presence felt. And he's going to begin to bring change where it matters most, not on the outside. We always want him to change things on the outside. Where he needs to make the change is in your heart. If he does that, all the outside stuff begins to take care of itself. My prayer is that when you come to Thanksgiving, that you begin to thank God for what he has done in your life if he's already done some of those things. And if he hasn't done it yet, that maybe part of your Thanksgiving would be to seek it. Father, thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you for the transformation that results from it. We're flawed, Lord. We're, we're a mess sometimes. And how desperately we need you to watch over us, to bless us, to put your name upon us. And yet we resist it too. My prayer is this morning that you begin to touch hearts. Speak to them from your word of truth. May they look up, seek your blessing, seek your power, seek your change, and be thankful, Lord, encouragement to them. And that tonight we could come back, Lord, and celebrate together your goodness. Ah, Father, you're so good. In Jesus' name, amen.